We are going to be sending three weeks, the next three weeks, dealing with this uh, series, little mini-series, um, entitled uh, uh, Caesar and the Church. And uh, we'll be in it for three weeks, and then normal service will be resumed, and we'll be starting our new verse-by-verse study through the book of Daniel, which will be an appropriate one following this series. Um, because there are a few guests and what have you today, and, and, and uh, let me just say a few basic things. Firstly, we are a Bible-believing church, so we believe that the Bible is the Word of God, that it is inerrant, without error, that it is authoritative, we must do what it says, and that it is sufficient In other words, it tells us all we need to live a faithful and godly life. And therefore, um, it really doesn't matter what we think. And it really doesn't matter. um, We're not interested today in gathering opinions or anything like that. We're just, the only job I have is simply to teach what the Bible has to say on this matter. It is a a sermon, so I'm going to be teaching. Um, It's not an interactive thing if you're new to church. Um, but we do have interactive teaching on a Tuesday night. So if any questions arise from this, this sermon today and this stuff you want to kind of get, you want to give feedback on or you want to disagree with or you want to talk about or you want clarification on, then we have the facility for that in our Tuesday night meeting. But also to say as we start, this is not a sermon on COVID or masks or anything of that nature. I am not a doctor. I am not the son of a doctor. I'm the grandson of a dentist, but that's irrelevant. But this is not a sermon about COVID. This is not a sermon about the Constitution of America. I know for a fact that we have friends who will occasionally tune in and watch from England, from, uh, from New Zealand, from South Africa. And they are countries that do not have the Constitution that we have in this country. And I am not a lawyer either. So I am no constitutional expert. Um, So we are not doing a sermon about that. And we're not even really specifically doing a sermon about the current situation that we find ourselves in in the world. We are simply looking at the Bible and we want to know what the Bible says about government, the authority of government, the role of government, and how that interacts with the church. That's it. And that is going to be true because it's the Bible regardless of what country or time you find yourself in. And so that is the mission before us today. The Bible's teaching on government authority and how that impacts the church. So let's pray and then we will dive in to that task. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that as we study your word today, that you would be glorified. That your Holy Spirit who inspired this text would also illuminate it to us today. May nothing that I speak be of me. May nothing that I speak be an error. But may I simply faithfully represent your word, your truth, and your teaching. May we come, all of us, with humble hearts, ready to learn, ready to grow, ready to change, ready to bring glory to your holy name through the equipping of Scripture. Amen. Amen. Okay. 
So let's turn, um, if you would, to Romans 13. If you are one of those people who relies on an electronic Bible, you're going to be in a little bit of trouble today because we are flicking and moving and dodging and diving and we're going to be all over. Um, regulars know that this is, this is a nightmare for me. I, I've always described the text that I'm teaching as being like those bumpers you have when you go 10-pin bowling, you know. I, I, I feel like there's, there's gutters today I don't normally have to deal with. I could go off anywhere. Normally I've got one text, and I just teach that text. So I, I'm, I'm going uh, I'm, I'm to be skimming around to various places today, um, and I hope you have Bibles and you can skim with me. There's some in the pews in front of you if you don't. Now, Romans 13 verse 1 is a text that we're not going to be dealing with Romans 13 fully this week. We're going to be dealing with it fully next week. But it is our starting point because it is really the bone of contention and the issue that, that really we are trying to deal with. Romans 13 says this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. In the last year or so, we have seen in this country and many, many others, we have seen restrictions placed upon churches by various forms of government. And Christians all have, well, Bible-believing Christians, let's limit it to that, all have the same Bible and the same text. And yet the responses have been astonishingly different. And Romans 13 verse 1 is a text that I think that at this time perhaps a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago, before all this COVID stuff started, that this was a text that the vast majority of Bible-reading Christians would have said, well, this is pretty simple. You just have to obey the government, submit to them, do what they say, unless they tell you to sin. And then you don't have to do it. Don't sin. So if they tell you, if the government says, go out and kill someone, you don't have to do that. You don't have to sin. If they tell you that that you know... that you should, um, you know, not believe in Jesus or deny Christ. Obviously, don't do that. That's sinful. But otherwise, you just simply submit to the government in whatever they tell you to do. And that's been the understanding of Romans 13, 1 and, and the verses following, predominantly verse 1. And so really, in this last year or so, as, as the government restrictions have come and gone and in and out and all over and Supreme Court battles here and there, and other countries have had it far, far worse than us. As all of this has been going on, many Christians have simply resorted to shorthand where they just simply say, Romans 13, 1, bro, that's it. Like, like I I mentioned Romans 13, verse 1, we're done. That's it, argument settled, it's a slam dunk, you've just got to do what they tell you. But, other Christians with exactly the same text, here in Romans 13, 1, and obviously 1 Peter 2, verse 13, that speaks in, in similar terms have issues with that, and they haven't worked it out in quite the same way. So so let's just, as we start, let's just be clear. We agree on certain things. In fact, the main things we agree on. We all agree 
that we need to submit to the government in some way. The text says it. And we all agree that if someone that we would normally submit to tells us to sin, then we don't do that. So we all agree on those points. But the issue of contention is this. Do we always have to submit in all areas and all commands, in all situations, unless it's sinful? And many churches have concluded not. Churches that were told you couldn't be open were open. But others did what they were told and were closed. Some churches went and met outside when they were told to. Others didn't. They stayed inside. Many churches imposed social distancing and masks. Many churches didn't. Many churches insisted that people, um, you know, didn't sing. Other churches didn't. And so we have this bizarre scenario where we have the same text... We agree on the same principles predominantly that we should submit and that we don't submit if it's sinful. And yet we have, we have, we'll have, we'll have some churches, even, even just in our local area, we've had churches that have basically just been open as normal, business as usual, no masks, no separation, no nothing, no restrictions. And the government says, you can't do that. And they say, yes, we can. That's that. And then we've had other churches that have said, we will, we will not meet. Now you say we can meet outside. Thank you very much. We'll meet outside. But we've got to wear masks when we're outside. And you mustn't sing while you're wearing masks while you're outside. And have gone to completely the other extent. And so there are, there are two possibilities here. There's only two possibilities. Possibility number one is this. That Christians have bowed to Caesar when they think that they're bowing to Christ. Or or, or perhaps more accurately, that they've bowed to Caesar thinking that in doing so, they are bowing to Christ, who has given Caesar his authority. And then, of course, the other possibility is that people have rebelled against God, thinking that they are in fact serving him. You can't both be right here. Do you understand me? I mean, even if churches decide to do things different ways, the approach that we take to the government, you can't both be right. I Either Caesar says it, we do it, and in doing that we're obeying God, or that isn't the case, and we need to get this right. And, and friends, the church is dividing over this issue. There were groups of fellowships of various churches that were all united, and then this came along, and half of, and some of them are meeting with masks and saying, you know, you really should get vaccinated. The other half are saying, you know, whatever. And, and we're now at the point where some churches are saying you have to be vaccinated to walk in the door, as if they've never even read James 2, verse 1. So, so we, have, we have groups of Christians who are separating on this issue, and we urgently, desperately need biblical clarity on this matter. What does the scripture teach? And that's what we're going to be dealing with for the next three weeks. So let's start with, let's start at the beginning. Genesis 1.1. You don't have to turn there. I imagine you know it. But for those of you who take minimal notes, um, I know not all of you are Tim Mowens and, and write half an essay, but for those of you who take minimal notes, I'm going to, I'm going to give you the, the, the very briefest things you should try and remember. Because if you can remember just two groups of three, then you've got this sermon. There's three things, three points, and one of those points has three subpoints. And if you can just remember those things, then you'll, you'll remember what we're saying here today. The first point is simply this. All authority is God's. 
I shouldn't really have to argue this point, should I, at this point? But, you know, let's do it anyway. It'll be fun. We'll be in the Bible. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He made them. They're his. He's in charge. There you are. We've done it. Brilliant. But let's do a little bit more. Let's do a little bit more. How about Matthew 28, verse 18, at the, the Great Commission? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, says Jesus Christ. This is an issue that really shouldn't be difficult for us. That all authority belongs to God. And we saw providentially, as we were finishing off Psalm 9 last week, we were... Um, uh, we kind of the last two weeks with Psalm 8 and Psalm 9, we briefly dipped into the book of Hebrews. And in Hebrews 2, where it's quoting from Psalm 8 and it's dealing with the things being in subjection to Christ, Hebrews 2 and uh, verse 8 says, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. So Matthew 28, all authority has been given to Jesus. And then in the book of Hebrews, everything's been put into subjection to him, and there's nothing outside his control. One more time. Nothing outside his control. Christ is in control of all things. He has all authority. It has been given to him. At present, second half of verse 8, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. And we dealt with that in depth the last few weeks, so I won't go back to it. But you get the point. We live in this world, and you're like, well, I'm looking at the world, and who's in control? Well, Jesus is in control. Really? Because I'm looking at this government here and that government there. I'm looking at sickness. I'm looking at poverty. I'm looking at all the trials in the world. Jesus is in control. Yes, but we don't see it now. But what's going to happen is he's going to work all things out, and ultimately... He will step upon the throne and he will rule on the Davidic throne. There is a sense in which Jesus is on the throne right now. He's God, he's sovereign, he's in heaven, he's in control. But there's a sense in which there is another throne, an earthly throne, the throne of the, that is, is his through the Davidic line, where he will rule and reign on this earth and all glory will go to him. We're not there yet, are we? Clearly. <laughs> Lots of different governments, lots of different countries. And I'm longing for the day when there is one king. Jesus Christ over all of this earth. That will be a great day. But we're not there yet. But what the text in Hebrews says very clearly. He has authority. Everything is under his subjection. But we're working through to get to a point where we can see that he has all authority. But we're not there yet. He does, but he's working things out for his glory. We're not there to the end game, as it were, yet. That's what's going on, okay? So, all authority, even in this broken, fallen world, belongs to him. At the end of the service today, we're going to sing one last time while we've got our drummer with us still, uh, Juice Doxology. Uh, To him be all glory, all power and authority. We know it. It all belongs to him. But before we move on from this point, I just want to show you this in practice in ways that will help us later in the sermon by going through one Old Testament book and one New Testament book. So let's go to Daniel first. That's our Old Testament book. I had Sarah read from Daniel for us earlier. If you're in big prophets, you need to go further. If you're in small prophets, you need to go back. And then you'll find the book of Daniel. 
Um, just a couple of little passages, you'll be very familiar with them. Um, Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. Hey, you guys, you're all going to be killed unless you tell me the interpretation of that dream. No problem, we'll tell you the interpretation. Oh, and by the way, you have to tell me what the actual dream is as well. They're like, uh-oh, we're in trouble. Daniel says God can do this. And so Daniel comes before Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, I'm just going to read a little bit from verse 17 of chapter 2. Daniel went to his house, made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, uh, his companions, told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions may not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Lots at stake. Lots at stake. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. So Daniel blessed the God of heaven. I bet you did. You're about to die unless you know someone's dream. And then in the night where you're sleeping, you have a vision and you get the dream that you need to know to say. And it's like, yeah, I'm going to bless the God of heaven at that point. I really am. Okay. So he blesses the God of heaven. He says this, blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding And he reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells in him. God is sovereign. He gives authority. He has authority. He lifts up kings. He takes away kings. He has one season. He changes it to another season. You remember what we we saw uh, last year in 2 Peter? In 2 Peter it says, you know, I'm obviously loosely paraphrasing, but... We think that the world is just going to keep on going like it is. But hey, do you remember Noah? There was a time when the world was completely different. And then out of nowhere, seemingly the flood came and everything changed. Everything changed. The nature of people on the earth, what they look like, geography, climate, everything changes. Completely changed. Not to mention the fact that the entirety of mankind, bar one family, are wiped out. And Peter says that's going to happen again. Who determines that? God. God changes seasons and times. God changes kings and rulers. You know when, when, when things like the Soviet Union breaks up into multiple different countries, when you have Yugoslavia breaking up and all that, you, you know who is sovereign over that? Jesus is sovereign over that. He is sovereign over kings and rulers. And this is really the central theme of Daniel. Spoiler alert, those who are planning to come for the next however many months that we do it. But let's press on to chapter 4, where we see this theme continued. This is the passage that Sarah read for us this morning. It's a little bit longer. I had to read it, so I won't need to. Um, so you, you, you've heard the story already today. Nebuchadnezzar, proud man. I mean, and let's be clear, he's one of the greatest kings physically speaking, in human history. He's up there with Alexander the Great and people like that. He, he was an astonishing ruler with astonishing power and it got to his head and it made him proud. And so we have this situation where um, here in, in chapter 4 where he is humbled and God crushes him. Let me just pick up a few verses in the text that Sarah read. Look at verse 24. This is the interpretation. It's not a dream to be interpreted, O king. It is a decree of the Most High. Isn't that interesting? Hey, you're king. You're the most powerful king that, you, that the world knows of at this point in the entirety of history. But there's someone who's the Most High, and it's not you. That's, that's, that's good. I like that which has come upon my Lord, the King. See the submission, see the reverence, see the respect. You're not boss, but you're my immediate boss. And you're the King. It's interesting. We'll deal with that in detail in Daniel. 
that you will be driven from among men and your dwelling will be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he wills. Isn't that magnificent? So you're the greatest, most powerful human ruler ever, huh? Okay, I'm just going to make you eat grass and go completely mad. Bonkers, as we might say in England. Just let you go completely crazy. You're going to eat grass for years. No one's going to be able to tame you. Your hair's going to grow out. Your nails are going to grow out. And you're going to basically be an animal. Why? So that you know who the boss really is. And then, verse... Uh, Moving a little further forward, verse, uh, that was verse 32. Let's go to verse 34. At the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, shifts now to Nebuchadnezzar speaking. I lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the most high. I think a few years of eating grass would, would help a few people realize that they're not in charge, wouldn't it? But look at the end of it. This is what I wanted to see. And I praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now hear that. Let's break that down. He's got all authority and he does as he wishes. He has a kingdom that is eternal. There's a kingdom here, there's a kingdom there. There's always different earthly kingdoms. But Nebuchadnezzar recognizes that there was one kingdom over all. That he is sovereign over the unseen realm of heaven and the seen realm of this earth. And that nobody gets to tell him what to do or to question what he's done. You say, I know plenty of people who question what he does. Yeah, I know them too. That's not the point of the text. The point of the text is they have no right to. He is sovereign. He is in charge and he has all authority so when we come to the new testament and turn now to the book of mark we see the same principle working out but we see the application of the authority of god given to jesus christ by the way there are only a handful of verses in the new testament where jesus is specifically called god i won't get into that today but what we need to understand is that the deity of jesus christ is a is one of, if not the central theme of the Gospels. And it, is, it, it permeates almost everything. And, and this is one example of that. Who has all authority? You've just finished the Old Testament. You now come to the New Testament. Who has all authority? Well, God does. Yahweh. Okay? Now let's, let's look at Jesus. What do we find out about Jesus? Oh, he has all authority. Mm, so who would he be then? And you have these kind of connections being made constantly. So... I just want to point a couple of things from, uh, from Mark's gospel. Um, look at chapter 1 and verse 21. They went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one who had authority, that's that key word, and not as the scribes. And immediately in the synagogue there's a man with an unclean spirit and he cries out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have, I, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. The Holy One of God. By the way, you may not be familiar with this, but everybody there was. The Holy One of God is a, is a specific, well-known, Isaianic term. In other words, it's used by Isaiah a lot. 
to speak of God. And the demon comes and says, I know who you are, you're God. It's kind of cool passage. Anyway, we've done Mark. I'm not doing Mark again. My point is this, that Jesus comes and the things that he says, his words, his teaching have authority. And the things that he does show his authority. And that's true throughout the Gospels. That what he says and what he does prove that he has authority. He has all authority. And uh, chapter 4, verse 35, just one more little example, is when Jesus calms the storm. By the way, when he calms the storm, you're essentially getting, in real life, an exposition of the Psalms. Who is it who rebukes the waves and the wind in the, in the Psalms? I think Psalm 67, off the top of my head. Yeah, no, somewhere around there. No, yeah, 67, maybe 104 as well. But it talks about, about God is the one who is sovereign over the, over the weather, over the waves, over the storms. And he rebukes them and they're calm. And he is sovereign. So what does Jesus do in this story? He rebukes the storm. And, and the key verse in this text is this. Afterwards they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? He teaches with authority, and the demons obey him, and the the elements, the weather, obey him, because he is sovereign over all, all people, angelic beings, the earth itself. He is sovereign over all. So that's point one. Point one is that all authority is God's. And so... Jesus, as we said earlier on, Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And so Jesus has been given all authority. But Matthew 28 then goes on to say, therefore, go. I've got the authority, therefore you go. You go making disciples, you go baptizing people, and you go teaching them to observe all the things that I've taught you. You go because I have authority. How does that work? Well, if you're still in Mark, turn to Mark 3. Turn to Mark 3, Mark 3, 13 and following. He sends out the apostles. He went up to the mountain. He called to him those he desired and they came to him. By the way, authority is more of a theme in Mark's gospel than any of the other gospels. We, did, we taught Mark a while back a few years ago and, and dealt with that then. It, it really is a key issue. And so the way this is worded is absolutely crucial. He goes up, he calls those he wants to call, and they just come to him. That's authority. You see, was there no human will involved in that? Oh yes, there was human will. They, 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 they said, oh yeah, we'll follow him. But they did it because he has authority. We don't have to wrestle with these things. There's, there's, there's human will and, and we, we do what we, what we think is right, but God is sovereign in control over all of it. And so they just come. They come because he calls. And he appointed 12 who he also named apostles, um, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. And then he, they're all there. He went home, crowd gathers, and, and so on and so forth. So the disciples are called and they go out and they are able to preach, and they are able to cast out demons. And the text specifically says, he gave them the authority to cast out demons. Now, I want you to notice one thing here. There were, there were 12 people who were called and were sent out. One of them wasn't even saved. 
And yet he still had the authority to cast. And the text doesn't say, they come back and they're like, wow, even the demons obey us. This is amazing. The text doesn't say, wow, they obeyed us all, apart from that guy Judas. No, they didn't do anything he said. I don't get that. That's not what the text says. He had authority to hand it to the 11 who did believe and the one who didn't. He had authority and he gives that authority to whomever he wishes and whomever he wills. That's why in Matthew 28, that's why in Matthew 28, because Jesus has authority, he can say go and we go and do stuff because he gives us the authority to baptize. He gives us the authority to teach. He gives us the authority to to, um, to, to go and do the things that we're commanded to do in whatever areas and realms that there are. We can do that because he has all authority and so he can delegate it. Now, there are a bunch of texts to do with delegating. I, I want to just mention a couple very briefly without turning there. But in, in Isaiah 10, those who were here for our studies in Isaiah, I mean, de- delegation even begins in Genesis 1 before I get to Isaiah. You know, God creates the heavens and the earth and then he makes man. And what does he say to man? You're going to have dominion over the earth. You're in charge of the earth. He's delegating authority. He's passing it on. Isaiah is another one. It's very interesting. Isaiah 10, many of you were here for doing that. And Isaiah 10, we have the whole issue of Assyria. And God is going to use Assyria to punish Israel because of their sin and their idolatry. And this is what Isaiah 10 verse 5 says about Assyria. It says, you are the, they are the rod of my anger and the staff in their hands is my fury. In other words, God says, I need someone to put Israel in their place. I'll get Assyria to do that. Even though they weren't believers. Jeremiah 25 is even clearer. We're back to our friend Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is used by God. The Israelites didn't obey. They didn't obey the Lord of hosts. And so Jeremiah 25 verse 8 says, I will send Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant. Just to be clear, the time when Nebuchadnezzar became his servant in a sense that we would think was being his servant, post-eating grass, that happens when they're already in captivity. The sending of them to, to conquer Israel, to destroy Jerusalem, to destroy the temple, to take them into captivity, that happened long before Nebuchadnezzar gave, gave two hoots about, um, about the God of Israel. And yet he's my servant. Because God can give authority to believers and to unbelievers as he wishes. So, our first principle was that God has all authority. And our second principle is that God can can and does delegate that authority. But one last thing to say on this. When people are delegated authority, it doesn't become their authority. There's not a sense in which the disciples would say, man, you know what? I can cast out demons now whenever I want for the rest of... I've got... They don't... They they know it's not them. Many of you know that recently I was in a bad car accident and the car got totaled and so right now we're driving um, uh, this really nice rental car. If you think that we got a raise or something, it's just a rental. Don't worry. Um, 
we got this nice rental car and the first week that we had it because we're trying to sort out with the insurance company about payments and stuff we had to kind of pay initially until all the the liability was accepted and what have you and then they were going to reimburse it so we kind of you know cash flow wise had to be careful so we didn't go for the top end insurance so i'm driving around in this rental car being fully aware that I'm not, I don't even know what the rules were. I know I was insured, but I know that I could have got more insurance, okay? So as far as I'm concerned, I'm driving around a gold car. I just, I gotta, I'm going to have double the distance from any other vehicle. I'm gonna, my wife loved it. She was like, man, you're driving so much better. This is great. And, and I'm being super, super careful. Why am I being careful? Because it's not my car. It's not my car. I have been delegated authority. I'm a man and my husband and I've been delegated authority in my home. Not my authority. I'm a pastor and I've been delegated authority in this church. It's not my authority. It is God's authority that he is entrusting to me to, to manage, to exercise. And I will be held accountable for doing so. Because it's not my authority. If I drive that car and I crash into somebody, I am liable, I am responsible. Not my car. I'm accountable to the one whose car it is. Not our authority. Why? Because all authority belongs to God. So there's our first two principles. All authority belongs to God and God delegates authority. Right, here's the key one. Principle number three. Authority, when delegated, is limited. When authority is delegated, it is limited, right? So, right, you know, just for a very, very silly example, we, we, we did the whole sort of, um, you know, installing our new deacon, kicking out the old one. Um, <laughs> just kidding, Tim. And um, we had them up on the stage with their wives, right? So my wife is here, and, and I'm, I'm her husband, and so, so there is a degree to which I have authority over her, right? But I don't have authority over Sarah and Patty, because then they're, they're not—they're not my wives, right? And if I were, and there were, there were there's a hundred different things I could have said to Jenny. Hey, you need to do this now, and she'd have said, uh, 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 and she'd have been absolutely right to say no. So we recognise that that, that that the authority that we have is limited, and it's limited in three areas. So if you're only going to write two things down in this entire sermon you want to write down the three main points god has all authority god delegates authority and the delegated authority is limited yes and then the other thing you're going to write down is the ways in which that authority is limited it's limited in these different spheres it's limited in person it's limited in realm and it's limited in extent and i'm going to show you that from the scripture i'm going to show you that from the scripture so firstly, it's limited in person. Now, when, a, when, some, when somebody steps out of their sphere, when somebody tries to exercise authority that they don't have because they as a person haven't been given that authority, then they're automatically outside of their realm and outside of the extent of authority as well. It covers all bases. So if you haven't been given authority, you don't have authority. Right? If, if one of you says, well, I'm a man, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to boss Jenny around and tell her what she should and shouldn't do, boy, are we going to have a problem right there. That's, you're not the per I'm the only person. You're not that person. All right? 
And, and here's an example just so you understand the concept. I really like this example. I, I won't lie. I thought this was quite a good one. So you're driving down the freeway. Maybe you're going a little too fast. And then you get those, you get the sirens. You hear them first because you're not checking your mirror because you're a bad driver because you're going too fast. You hear the sirens. Now you look in the mirror. You see the blue lights and you know, you've you got to pull over. So you pull off the freeway and you go off and you're like, oh man, how much was I, was I going 10 over 50? Oh man, I'm in trouble. Because you know that there's a police car, right? And, and they have authority and you know. And then as you stop, the door opens and out of the police car comes Greta Thunberg. And she comes up to you and she says, do you know how fast you were going? How dare you? <laughs> At that point, I, I would either laugh or just faint or just, you know, you're like, okay, I'm good now. There's no ticket being issued today because that girl has no authority, no matter how much she claims I ruined her childhood. So, so you can have people who think, like, I'm really important, I'm really powerful, and everybody has to listen to what I say. But if, if they are not the person who has been granted authority in that realm to that extent, it doesn't matter. If you, you, can't, you can't follow your neighbor home and say, man, they're speeding, so I'm just going to go faster to keep up with them so I can give them a ticket, because I really don't like people speeding on the road. You, you have no authority. You're not the person to whom it has been delegated. So if the person hasn't been delegated with authority, the person doesn't have authority. Let me show you a really powerful example of this in Scripture. Second Chronicles 26. And if you, if you don't want to turn there, it's fine. I'm just going to read it super quick and, and then move on. Because I think it's a pretty obvious principle. Greta taught us that. But um, 26 and verse 16. Okay, here we go. This is Uzziah. You know, you know Uzziah. In the year that King Uzziah died, it's sad really that the thing we remember him most for is the year he died. That was when Isaiah had his vision. But the King Uzziah was a, was, a, was a king. He reigned in Judah. And in verse 16 we're told this. But when he was strong... He grew proud to his destruction. Sounds a bit like Nebuchadnezzar, doesn't it? You know, that's when we always learn about authority in the Bible. It's when people who don't have it think that they do. That's always the time. So here, here is Uzziah. And Uzziah, he's king. He's powerful. He's, he's been given authority. I mean, he's a king, so he's got authority, right? Yeah, okay, fine. So he's got authority. So how could this be a problem? But he, for he was unfaithful to Yahweh his God, and he entered the temple of Yahweh to burn in, incense on the altar of incense. But Azariah, the priest, went in after him with 80 priests of Yahweh, who were men of valor, and they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It's not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to Yahweh, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense, go out of the sanctuary. For you have done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from Yahweh God. Then Uzziah was angry. Now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense. But when he became angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priests in the house of Yahweh by the altar of incense. Nazariah, the chief priest... And all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous in his forehead. And they rushed him out quickly, and he hurried himself, he, he himself hurried to go out, because Yahweh had struck him. And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death, and being a leper lived in a separate house, because he was excluded from the house of the Lord. That's a really good example. 
Here is a person who has authority. He's king. He's got tons of authority. But you don't have authority to do that. And 80 brave priests tried to stop him, tried to say, you cannot do that because this is our realm. Can you imagine in any other context today what that would look like? Oh, you're so selfish. You want to keep it for yourself. You don't, do you know who I am? I'm the freaking king. How dare you? They were going to get killed for that insubordination. And right at the moment that he gets angry, boom. It wasn't his realm. He didn't have that extent of authority. And he, as a person, was not granted authority in that regard. Do we understand that? He wasn't the person who had authority in the temple. He went, in, and, and you know, there are obviously implications in this text for today. We will save that for week three. But he went into the house of God and said, I'm the king. I will do what I want to be done will be done in here. And I will do it and I will exercise this job. No, no, no. You have no authority. You have no authority in the house of God. You're the king. Get out. It's very, very clear. Now let's look at the issue of realm. Let's go back to the book of Daniel. Again, if you're in the big prophets, go forwards. If you're in the small ones, go back. Book of Daniel, and we're going to look at chapter 6. Everybody knows this story. If they've been to Sunday school on two or three occasions in their life, they probably got taught this. Daniel in the lion's den. We know the story, perhaps, in Daniel 6. This is a good example of realm. It's a good example of, 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 uh, of realm. Isaiah was just not the person at all. He had, he had you know, no authority at all. He, he had authority in other areas, but he had no authority. In, in Daniel 6, it's interesting... Because there's the King Darius, and he's the king of the Medo-Persians. Now, we in America have a constitution which is different from every other country. The Medo-Persians had their own bizarre rules. In Medo-Persia at that time, if the king made a decree, then the decree is binding. And now the decree has greater authority than the king. He can't get rid of that decree. It's kind of like a make-up-a-constitution-as-you-go kind of thing. I don't, I don't really understand it, but that, that's how it was. So he, at the, at, the, at the behest of those who were trying to get to Daniel, he comes along, and he likes Daniel. He doesn't, he's, he doesn't mean any harm to Daniel. And he agrees that there should be this, this rule, this, should we use modern terms, mandate, um, that is imposed, saying that, da- that anyone who prays, Anyone who prays in the next 30 days can only pray, pray if to the king. Not to any other god, not to any other man, but you only make your petitions to the king. Now, to us it sounds a bit weird. You wouldn't pray to a king. It was more usual in that society. But I think we understand the idea of making a petition. That you would go to the king and say, can you help with this? Can you do that? Okay? You can't go to God and ask for anything. Only the king. That's the, that's the rule. So what does Daniel do when he hears this rule? Well, if Daniel had been in many churches in our era, he'd have seen people doing this. He'd have seen people saying, do you know what? He's telling us that we can't pray, so we obviously won't do it loudly in public for people to see. But if we go and do it in, a little, in our closets, in our little prayer closet, kneel down in the corner of our room, don't tell anybody, then we can do it. We can do this. We can, and we can submit to the king. You know, we can do it quietly, privately. Ah, no, 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 says Daniel. Let's just open the windows and let's go by the edge of the house overlooking the area. Let the window open so everybody can hear me pray. 
I mean, that is a real right royal, if you pardon the pun with the king, trying to like stuff you. You, you don't get to tell me who I pray to. You don't get to tell me how I pray, when I pray, how I sing, when I sing. I get to do that. You don't get to do that. Does the king, is he the person, person, who has been given authority to make laws? Yes, he is. Right person to make a law. Does he have authority over that realm? The realm of personal prayer and devotion and to whom you make your petitions? No, he doesn't. Clearly. But of course, there's, there's the issues of pragmatism here. We're going to talk about pragmatism in week three when we wrap things up. You want to see what it looks like in practice? You just look up at the border in Canada. Where they were meeting as a church, the government said, no, you can't do it. They met anyway. And then what happened is the pastor got put in prison. But they have no authority to put him in prison. No, but they did it anyway. So somebody else got up to preach the next Sunday. And the government realized, okay, they're going to keep doing this. So then the government boarded off, uh, fenced off the church so no one could get on the property. But they have no authority to do that. No, but they did it anyway. So then what the church in Canada did is they copied, they took a leaf out of China's book and they started an underground church. And that church met, continued to meet every single week, but only told the location to the church members. That's pragmatism. Daniel prayed. He had every right to pray. He made sure the king knew he was praying. He's like, I'm not bowing before that. That's not your realm. But he still had to go to the lion's den. You know, I mean, there's pragmatism here. And then we have this wonderful ending to the story. And when I say wonderful ending, you think I'm talking about the lions not eating him. No, there's an even better ending. Let me, sh- let me show you this. Uh, and Daniel 6. Uh, end of, I didn't write down the exact verse, so I'm just skimming through here. Right, verse 19. Verse 19. <clears throat> At the break of the day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. King loved Daniel. He had no... No, he got tricked. He had no qualms with Daniel. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, Oh, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Man, this is going to be a moment of faith right now, isn't it? And Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. There's so much humor there, I can't even tell you. I mean, firstly, there's him respecting the authority of the king who has authority. Though he overstepped in this case, he still remains the king. And there's that respect. But I love the phrase, live forever, coming from the mouth of a guy who's just coming out of a den of lions. Maybe that's just me. I I think that's funny. But uh, he says, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut up the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me. Now listen to this. Because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king, I've done no harm. Now, hear this, folks. He has just told the king who made the law, I did nothing wrong. I'm blameless. I broke the rule that you set, but I did nothing wrong. That law had no authority because you had no basis to make it, because though you were the right person, that is not your realm. Do you understand that? Outside of the spheres of authority. Right person, but wrong realm. And then, 
Finally, we come to the third issue, which is the issue of extent. Now, this is fascinating. There's, there's an interesting bit. Of, we've already mentioned Isaiah 10. You remember I told you Isaiah 10? Assyria, the rod of my anger, my staff is in their hands. You know, he's using Assyria to judge Israel, right? That's in, that was verse 5. In verse 10, he judges Assyria for treating Israel harshly. You're like, hold on a second, you sent them in. But they went beyond what they were told they could do. They went too far. Here's the perfect example of this. I don't even need to turn here because you, know, you presumably all know the story. The story of David and Bathsheba. David and Bathsheba, he sees the woman out on the rooftop bathing. He, he, he gives in to his lust. He calls her to him. He sleeps with her. He gets away with it, he thinks, but then it turns out she's pregnant. Now he's got a problem. There is her husband, Uriah. Uriah is not just some guy. Uriah is one of David's mighty men. He knew him well. He was a faithful servant of David. And then David embarks in this whole, these whole shenanigans where he has to try and get Uriah to sleep with Bathsheba, his wife, so that it looks like the kid is his. And when that fails, he resorts to murder. And what he does is he sends him off to war and he gives instructions to the leader to pull back so that Uriah is left at the front and he falls by the sword in warfare. Now let's just go through our list. Number one, is David the person who has authority regarding wars, warfare, and all of these kind of things? Absolutely, he's the king. He has authority. He is the right man. Is this realm the realm in which kings have authority? Uzziah didn't have any authority in the realm of the temple. You know, Darius, even though he was an unbeliever, wasn't even a Jew. He's a Medo-Persian. They have their own systems. Did he have authority to say, you can't pray? No, he didn't have authority. That wasn't his realm. Does David have authority on what armies do and how they function? Absolutely he does. That's his realm. He can say, move forwards, go back, go to war, come back from war. He is in charge. Should we use a modern term that you're familiar with? Commander-in-chief. That is definitively his realm. He is the right man and he has the right realm. Was what he did right or wrong? Obviously wrong. Why? Because he went beyond the extent of the authority that was given to him. Just because it's the right realm doesn't mean that you can do whatever you like within that realm. And this, and this is really clear in scripture. You know, we know this passage, all of us, I, I would have thought. It's been quoted like a zillion times in the last however long. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and render unto God what is God's. If nothing else, that teaches us that there are realms that belong to God and there are realms that belong to Caesar. That not that God has said, oh, I don't want it anymore, you have it, but that God has delegated his authority, that remains his, to Caesar. So what have we covered today? What have we covered today? Because we haven't answered our question at all. Because I posed you a problem at the start. The problem that I posed you was simply this. You know, does Romans 13 mean that we have to obey the government at all times unless it's sinful? And, and, and how, you know, the way in which we're responding is so different, you know, we're going to need to look at Romans 13 because we've been left with one crucial question. And the crucial question is this. If God has all authority, and if he delegates it to whom he chooses, has he delegated it to the government? 
Clearly, he's delegated them authority. The text in Romans 13 says so. Is the delegation of that authority unlimited? No, clearly it's not. Throughout Scripture, whenever authority is delegated, it is limited in some way. Here's your question. To what degree and in what way has God limited the authority of government? Or, in fact, that's not even in and of itself the right question. I know that you're familiar with the concept of limitations, you Americans, because you talk about the the limitation of government through the Constitution, or the limitation of rulers through the Constitution. But I I think there's a better way of looking at it. It's not what limitation is there on the authority that they've been given, but what authority have they been given? I hope that if there was a mandate given tomorrow by Biden or Newsom or whoever, and he said, whenever you go to the shops on a Friday, you must hop on your right leg. I hope, I hope, that every one of us would say, (laughs) no. Not your extent. You're way beyond, you don't have the authority to do that. Sad to say that I think some people you know, probably would do that and think he does that have authority. And the saddest thing of all is that some Christians might think that too, who claim that the Bible is their final authority. And they would claim that, and we're right back to where we started, because of their misunderstanding of Romans 13. So that's where we'll be next week. Next week we'll come to Romans 13, and more accurately we'll come to Romans 12. You cannot understand Romans 13 without the context of Romans 12. You will misunderstand it without Romans 12. But it wasn't given to us without Romans 12. So we will look at Romans and unpack it next week and we will start to uncover that crucial question. If God has delegated authority to the government, what authority has he delegated? What is the limitation that they have with regards to realm and extent? Does the Bible tell us? Spoiler alert, yes it does. And so that's what we'll look at next time. As for now, I simply want to leave you with this. Two things. Number one. Government does not have all authority. God does. Right? The President of the United States of America cannot say, you know what, I quite like Tijuana, I think we'll take it. That's not his realm. He doesn't get to do that. I can't say, you know what, we got parking problems at this church. Do you know what, we will put cones out all the way down Glen Oaks and all the way up Elmwood so that locals can't park there, so that only we at the church can park there. Because you know what, I have authority, I'm the pastor. Not outside on the road I don't. We render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Here's the crucial thing. Caesar doesn't get to decide what is his. Secondly, one more time, all authority is God's. He is sovereign, he is in control, and when he has given authority to bad rulers who don't bow before him, then we will say, bad ruler, you're bad, bow before him. Because we're good like that. And we love them that way. And we will trust him, knowing that he had a plan with Nebuchadnezzar, And he has a plan with all rulers, good and bad, in all times, in all nations, in all circumstances. And nothing is outside of his sovereign control. And so those of us who have trusted in him for our salvation will trust in him for this world as well, shall we not? That he knows what he's doing. 
that he is powerful and sovereign, but he is also good and works all things together for our good. And so it is right that we recognize his authority and we give all praise to his holy and powerful 